Would he, everyone join me in prayer? Almighty Father, your magnificence, we look out into the universe and it just transcends all glories. We come before you at this time, we're humbled as we see the limitless stretches of your creation and the billions of galaxies that you have put out there for a reason. We know that this feast has answers to what salvation is all about and also as well as your other feasts. We pray that our humble approach this day would be edify you, that you would be pleased with those that have come out to worship you and honor you and learn more about you on these, uh, these special days that you have provided for us. So we thank you, ask for your blessings here, and for those that are watching online, you would be with them and open up their minds as well as your word speaks to us of the many things that you have hidden there and now revealed. So we pray, Almighty Yahweh, now that you'll be with your people and all those scattered wherever they might be as they honor you. In Yahshua's name we pray. Hallelujah. You may be seated. Sitting up front, I heard the, uh, the just volume of voices back there, and I thought, boy, there's a lot of, must be a lot of people here. And then I did a flyby out of the dining hall, and even the overflow was getting full. So it's got to be got to be a feast. You know, it's a wonderful time. We look forward to it all the time. So when we're out looking for the first lunar crescent of each month, the passersby wonder, why are you staring up at the sky? We keep the Feast of Tabernacles. Many are puzzled why we go camping in the fall and out in the summertime when all the kids are out of school. When we meet on the Sabbath rather than the popular day of the sun, they ask, why are you honoring Old Testament customs? Well, the answer to all this is to do this because this is Yahweh's worship. Not our own, not a denominations. Your Hebrew Savior observed and taught them, and so we continue with that tradition that he taught and to continue on in his word. He is our judge for what we do now. And when the judgment is set and the books are open, he's going to evaluate our lives in comparison with what his word says. His laws mandate how faithful we were or were not in our lives. And so this is why we're here. We're here to honor him and to glorify his word and that he has commanded. How significant are Yahweh's Moedim, the only days that we find in scripture for annual observance. How, how really important are they? Hit and miss? Is it just whenever you feel like it? Maybe this time I'll go. Uh, what, what, what's the plan for that? Well, we look at, uh, start off with Passover, which meant, of course, the death of Yahshua and the relief, the end, the uh, payment of our sins. And then we have the next feast day, which is now, Feast of Unleavened Bread, where we apply what we've learned to uh, our lives as we leave the sin of Egypt and see Yahshua's resurrection as his wave sheaf, his access, access to Yahweh. That's how we reach him. That's why we end our prayers in Yahshua's name. We have to go through him. Then we have the Feast of Weeks. Yahweh's moral standards expressed in his law given at Sinai, coupled with the Acts 2 uh, giving of the Holy Spirit that will help us in our obedience to that. 
All of these things have a, have a meaning and not just something the Jews did and we have no clue about. They all have a meaning and they were all meant to be kept now in the New Testament, the New Covenant. Then in uh, the fall, we have the Feast of Trumpets. The day probably represents Yahshua's return. may not be on that day, but it's all about his return at the trumpet sound, bringing salvation to the planet. And then we have the Day of Atonement, sin covered by the payment of Yahshua's sacrifice, ending with the tabernacles. Israel in the wilderness, a kingdom type gathering, likely the time of Yahshua's birth as well. We look back at uh, his cousin John and Zechariah's course of Abia, and you can figure the six, six months, and you can extrapolate. It's obviously was in the fall, not in the middle of winter. And on the last great day, Yahweh himself comes to earth in the new Jerusalem to establish his capital here. And I was talking to a newly immersed brother. We were talking about the wonderful new city Jerusalem coming down, 1,400 miles cubed, as wide and long as it is high, reaching way up into the sky. It's uh, something we can hardly imagine. Speaking of the sky, look at the starry night. You know, we've had some beauties lately. It's been, it's been, everything has been kind of different as far as the weather and the atmosphere goes. Imagine all the countless planets in the universe. We look out and we see just basically hardly past, when we look at it, hardly out of our own galaxy, the Milky Way. Likely to be inhabited with people in the future. Who knows? Uh, with Jerusalem at the center of Yahweh's government right here as the focal point of the universe, the earth. Astronomers claim there are 80 billion planets like ours in the Goldilocks zone. Not too hot, not too cold, just right for life. 80 billion. That's just a guess, but they can kind of do a little math and look out there and see all these galaxies and say, you know what? There's a lot of uh, available space out there for human life or some kind of life that Yahweh chooses. It could be your assignment one day. Go, go to that planet and teach those people Yahweh's word. That's not out of the realm of reason because Yahweh doesn't create anything on a whim. He doesn't create planets there just for looks, but because he has a plan. He creates nothing in vain. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 2.9, As is written, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which Yahweh has prepared for them that love him. But Elohim has revealed them unto us by his Spirit, for the Spirit searches all things, yea, the deep things of Yahweh. We have insight because of Yahweh's Spirit. We come to truths in the Scriptures. Someone said to me, how do you know all this stuff? I've never heard all this stuff in my church. So I'll just your Bible out, get your nose in it, and you'll learn it too. But you got to work at it. It doesn't, it, you're not going to get it out there, you know, in uh, nominal worship. You got to dig it out yourself and study with us if you'd like. Many denominations teach that if you aren't converted now, if you aren't born again, you will not see salvation. So they're out to convert everybody now. Well, this feast teaches differently. This feast talks about first fruits. First fruits. They would know that Yahweh is not calling everyone now if they understood this feast, just the cream of the crop. 
Yahshua being the first of the first fruits, first, first, first in resurrection, and then the chosen in the next part of the, res- the, the next resurrection, I should say. Following Passover, the next seven days are called days of unleavened bread. This is found in Leviticus 23 and also the 12th chapter of Exodus. And the lesson of the Feast of Unleavened Bread is that after accepting the shed blood of Yahshua, we don't just sit now and say, well, okay, it's all done. Nothing more to do. I've got it made. I'm good now. No, because once you accept that shed blood, you have to strive for his kind of life. And that becomes a lifelong task. Doesn't mean that everybody's going to turn out like Yahshua. In fact, uh, pretty unlikely, but, you know, we have to strive for it. Paul says, be or become. He meant become perfect. Not that you can be perfect in this life, but we have to strive for it. That's our goal. If you have nothing to strive for, what's the use? You know, what am I supposed to do? Just sit here, you know, Another purpose of the holy days is to keep us continually engaged in the salvation plan of this earth. Without the knowledge of the holy purpose of Yahweh, man soon goes the wrong way, both in his thinking and in his his actions. Look at the spiritual decay of the northern kingdoms, the ten northern kingdoms that took off after Jeroboam, who set a month later tabernacles and everything went kittywampus from that point on. You look at that and you see the apostasy and you find out that this ten nation kingdom was never really blessed by Yahweh. They never had good righteous leadership. All the kings were bad. Some of them not as bad as others but it wasn't like Yahweh had uh, his, uh, his chosen down in the southern parts. The two kingdoms there. Think about this. Man's first sin was the breaking of a food law. People say, what? You don't eat pork and you don't eat shellfish? And No, the first law that was broken was a food law. Yahweh says, don't eat that, forbi- that fruit. It's forbidden. Guess what? It's kind of like you tell a child, you know, you're sitting in a big room and there's, uh, there's two doors. And you say, you can go that door. Guess where they go first? Don't eat that fruit. Where did they go? You know, they ate fruit in the garden, and they ate things off trees, and uh, really nothing had to die because trees rejuvenate their fruit every, every year. But once sin entered, then things started to die. People, they started to die. So, you know, it all went, uh, went south from there. Man's first sin was breaking a food law, The other big apostasy was changing Yahweh's established calendar to a month later. Jeroboam did that up at Bethel and uh, and, uh, the other town. I've forgotten what it was. But uh, they all, he said, come up here. Come up here. Don't go to Jerusalem. Come here. We'll have the feast here. Yeah, right. We'll do it wrong. We'll go up there, Mr. Jeroboam. Look at the apostasy of churchianity in the first 300 years after the apostles when the church chose to go a different way through their church councils, making rules and regulations by vote, political. That's how things got to change. Political councils, one doctrine at a time. All they had to do was follow the scriptures. The feasts show a calling out of special people, not the entire world. 
just a small amount, like a little leaven. Hey, leavening, that's what we're talking about now. We can't change the world. We can only reach out to those called by Yahweh with the truth that then would grow like it did in the first century of the common era. Ours is to teach the need to follow Yahshua and what he did and taught. And his overarching mission that sent me and to finish his work. Wait a minute. That sounds like a connection between Old Testament and New Testament, doesn't it? Finish his work. He desired to finish Yahweh's work that started in Genesis and not trash the Old Testament and start off with a new faith. Peter in 1 Peter 2.21 told us that Yahshua is our example and we're to follow in his steps. So what do we do? We follow what he taught. Not just what he said, but also what he did. We follow his, his examples. And his steps begin at the Old Testament, doing Yahweh's work. For even unto, even here unto you were you called, because Messiah also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow his steps, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. There's our goal. There's our, that's the target we aim at. So exactly how did he walk? Being sinless, he obeyed his father in everything. Perfect. Everything. Some may think we need to be less resolute about Old Testament commands and focus more on Yahshua. That's the biggest foul paw, I guess you could say, because following the precepts of the Old Testament is what he did. You see, we're just going to the source as he did. And then he helps us get through them. But you need to emphasize love like Yahshua did. Translation, love fulfills the law. Therefore, through love, you'll just get a pass. So every obligation in the Old New Testaments are not needed, unnecessary, they reason. Let's let John explain the love concept that many choose to exonerate. Read first. John 2, 3 to 7, and hereby we do know that we know him. If we keep his commandments, he that says, I know him, and keeps not his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. You want to get someone riled up, <laughs> quote that to him. Oh, don't give me that obedience stuff. But whosoever keeps his word in him, verily is the love of Elohim perfected. Hereby know that we are in him. He that says we abide in him, read, have a personal relationship with him, that's a popular phrase, ought also to walk, even as he walked. Brethren, I write no new commandment. He was trying to, guess people were getting all fouled up even back then. I write no new commandment unto you, but an old commandment, which you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word. Preach the word. Preach the word, Timothy was told. Literally, Keep the word in imitation of Yahshua. That's what we're trying to do. He did no sin, meaning he did not trespass any of Yahweh's commands or do away with any command. He said in Matthew 5.18 that it would take the complete dissolving of the universe before Yahweh's law would pass away. Till heaven and earth pass, not one yod, one tittle would in no wise pass away. That's that's. Perfect law right there with nothing missing, nothing taken out. Yahshua used that phrase in reference to his own words. 
And by the way, I recently heard someone say that Yahshua said, no man knows the day and hour of his return, but Yahweh himself, not even the angels. Matthew 24, 36. This person said, oh, he was just talking about the passing away of heaven and, uh, heaven and earth. No. Read the entire pericope, verse 34 and then verse 39. He clearly was talking about the timing of his return. You can't argue that. It's right there, bottled in by the first part of that and, and the last part of it. It's, it's clearly his return. Anyway, the entire seven days of unleavened bread are testimony to the deliverance of ancient Israel from Egypt. And unlike the message of today's communion service, this Feast of Unleavened Bread reminds us that we should not stop with the commemoration of Yahshua's death. Yes, we need that. We need those sins paid for, which he did. The penalty paid, but should continue then on to perfection. Let's put false doctrine and error out of our lives. That's what this feast is all about. Examining what you believe. Is it true? Does it square with scripture? You know, we get into the Bible studies and we, we grind away one verse at a time. And I'll tell you what, stuff comes out there you didn't know was there when you really take the time to go through the scriptures as we should. Word by word, phrase by phrase, and you'd just be amazed. I didn't know that was there. It's amazing. Just like baptism, without the laying on of hands for the spirit, there's more that's not being followed out there. Hebrews 6 1 says, therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Messiah, let us go on to perfection. You see, once we put leaven from our lives, we then progress to a higher spiritual level. We have the basics under our belts, now we go further, further, never ending. It's a it's a lifelong commitment. We have the basics that lead to repentance which are, they're, of course, fundamental. We get that. But at that point, most drop the ball. They don't go on to perfection. They just say they got it made now. This is all we need and uh, sit back in, in our lazy boy and uh, enjoy the world. You know, knowledge languishes and becomes of little importance when you don't place importance on understanding. You can almost hear it. I'm good now. I'm good. I'm baptized. In the Trinity, I'm good. I didn't necessarily do it right, according to Scripture, but he understands. That's kind of like, that's the philosophy of, of their whole lives sometimes. But uh, we live in a culture of the biblically uneducated who are untaught, unskilled, and uninformed. And now, even unable to pass right judgment. We see it all over in the news. A clear picture of our day was prophesied in Isaiah 59. And I want to read it out of the Living Bible. I know we don't use this for study purposes, but sometimes for just explain something simple, I'll, I'll go to it. Verses 14 to 15 of Isaiah 59. Our courts oppose the righteous man. Fairness is unknown. I'm sorry, fairness is unknown. Truth falls dead in the streets. And justice is outlawed. Yes, truth is gone, and anyone who tries a better life is soon attacked. Yahweh saw all the evil and was displeased to find no steps taken against sin. When do you hear sin being preached against 
I mean, growing up as a kid, I, we heard it all the time. Fire and brimstone and, and uh, you know, you, you, you can, well, burn forever in sin, which we find is not really scriptural. But I'll tell you what, it put the fear of Yahweh in people, and people were a lot more righteous than we see in our world that has done away with even talking about sin because it's not politically correct, whatever. So anyway, Passover pictures the forgiveness of sins that are past in Romans 3.25. While the Feast of Unleavened Bread portrays complete coming out of sin by leaving the world behind and following the ways of Yahweh. The feast teaches us to examine our beliefs so that we can grow, grow properly, grow spiritually, and go on to perfection. This Feast of Unleavened Bread has great significance for, for every believer. In Matthew 16, 6, Yahshua warned his disciples to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. What did he mean? Obviously, it's a spiritual application. The leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. There's something wrong here with these people. The disciples thought it was because they had brought no bread with them. Well, on the surface, you might think that. I mean, what else would, would you think of if you didn't know anything? But after some explanation, he says, Then understood they how that he bade them not beware of the leaven of bread, but of the doctrine of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So leavening can represent false doctrine. Besides that, leaven also represents hypocrisy. Look up Luke 12.1. And it also represents malice and wickedness, 1 Corinthians 5.8. So it represents a lot of things. Most people just say sin. Well, it, yeah, everything that leads to sin, sure, that's true. But uh, specifically, breaking it down, that's what leaven does. It works insidiously. And when it comes to error, because man loves error more than the truth, his leavening spreads quickly, quickly. Leaven permeates the whole lump, we, we see. I remember my grandmother making bread, and she'd put a little... Uh, starter in there, uh, the, the yeast, you know, and then she start pushing it and kneading it and mixing it and turning it and and the uh, best bread you ever had, I'm telling you, it was unbelievable. We ate the we we come down to visit her. We lived about 50 miles away. Come down to visit her, and by bedtime we had all four loaves devoured. It was fresh bread is just unbelievably good, and so. So is sin. You know, a lot of people love sin. It's just good. They, they, they love it. And it eats them up eventually, but they're, uh, they're not looking that far ahead. But it works slowly. And when it comes to error, man loves error more than the truth. And his leaven spreads. It permeates the whole thing, works its way through the whole loaf. We're told that we are to use the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth in 1 Corinthians 5, 8, Paul says. So at the beginning of each biblical new year, we keep the feast of unleavened bread and we're to do so in a new way, with new bread. The old leaven is to be discarded and removed. So we have new bread. So one person said, well, can I just take my, my, uh, my leavening products and put them out in the garage and then after the feast bring them back in? I said, can you do that with your sin? Just get rid of it and then bring it back in when the feast is over? Because that's basically what you're talking about. If you deliberately keep leavening in your dwelling when you know better during this feast, then you're 
You signify that you want to hold on to malice and wickedness and all those other things. You got to get rid of it. And sometimes, you know, we're caught flat-footed. We got all this leavening. We thought, oh, we should have used that up. Oh, it hurts to throw all that away. I mean, all these cans of, but you got to do it. Or, I guess, give it away to someone who doesn't care, but uh, I just soon get rid of it. But sin works that way. First, we entertain the idea, the thought enters our mind. Then we mentally go through it. And then finally, physically or whatever, finally do it. So thought can be good or bad. You got to keep your thoughts on the right track, not get off, because that's where it starts. During the days of unleavened bread, we get rid of all that offends and fills our minds, fill our minds with good things of Yahshua. And we stay clear of falling into the trap of doing what we know is wrong. After being forgiven of past sins, we no longer walk in them, or shouldn't. So if an unholy thought enters our minds, we immediately cast it out. I always tell the story of a gal I worked with. She was probably ready to retire. I mean, she was way ready for retirement. She was in her 80s, but she was still working. And she says, uh, someone came up and started telling her an off-color joke. She said, stop. I don't want to hear it because I know once it's in here, it's in there for good. I don't want to hear it. So I, I remembered that as a good example for everybody. Israel had unleavened bread because they didn't have time to wait for it to rise before leaving Egypt. They had to get going. By midnight, they had to move immediately. But that, that's not the entire reason for unleavened bread today. It's packed with, mean, with meaning. It had, takes only a little bit, as I mentioned. Scripturally, they use a small clump, a sourdough. Seor is a sour. That's where we get our, it's a Hebrew word that we get our word sour from. And part of the leavened dough was saved from the previous batch. And this small piece of sourdough was used to ferment the next batch. Paul wrote, your, leaven, your glorying is not good. Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Leaven in the form of uh, yeast spores is always there. It's always in the air. You leave something out, eventually it'll rot. It'll corrupt. It'll, uh, it'll be leavened. So it's always there. It's always in the world. We've got to watch for not being involved with it. Leaven works slowly, which we said. The people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading troughs being bound up in their clothes upon their shoulders, Exodus 12, 34. And leaven is a process of breaking down, too. It's a putrefaction type thing. When yeast attacks a lump of dough, it will in time ferment it and alter the whole substance, as we see. One meaning of leavening is false teachings. False teachings change the spiritual body. They work on it, and they change it. Error corrupts truth, and it brings on decay, decay spiritually from truth. False teachings destroy assemblies as if they're left unchecked. You see it over and over and over. Over the past five decades, so we've seen some come into the body with a false teaching. They go around leavening everybody, and then they leave. And the effects are still there, and you've got to get it out. Invariably, that corruption stays unless you, you know, root it out, like we do with this feast. Get the leavening out. And that's why one reason regular fellowship is so important 
And I, I feel for those that don't have it. They're out there by themselves, and they have no fellowship, so we do the best we can, you know, one, two, three thousand miles away, or maybe on the other side of the planet, by having the, the videos that they can watch on Sabbath, can join us that way. It's something, and I know it's not perfect, but uh, until they can come and enjoy the feast with us and whatever, uh, uh, some are willing to move here. We've got several on the way, I guess, from different parts of the, of the country. Anyway, it's, it's important to have that fellowship and be able to bounce things off of people. Maybe you've got a new idea. I never thought about this before. And you bring it to somebody who's knowledgeable and say, hey, what do you think of this? Well, yeah, that's interesting. But have you thought of this? Oh, no, I never thought about that part of it. A lot of things. So it's important for that, but also for the spiritual growth that you get through the brethren. Take regular course corrections through constant feast keeping through Sabbath keeping. They're necessary in understanding Yahweh's truth. Don't assume that a doctrinal anomaly is correct just because you read it in a blog or a website put out, put out by a wide-eyed, unschooled neophyte looking for a following. He doesn't even know what he's talking about, but he brings up this thing and everybody jump, well, some jump on it. Oh, wow, look at this. Look at this. You set the Sabbath by the moon. Look at that. No, you don't. Sabbath was set at creation. Come on. Some give credit to those who have studied biblical teachings in depth for the past 50 years. Defer to those who know something about Hebrew and Greek before you dive into something you know nothing about. Paul says those who labor in the word are to be honored, 1 Timothy 5.17. And uh, on, uh, well, let's go on to number, uh, my number four here. Leaven permeates completely, completely. When Israel was in Egypt, they were leavened by the air and corruption of Egypt. I mean, why would you want to stay there with these uncircumcised Philistines, so to speak? I mean, they were pagans worshiping Ra, the sun god, and all these other things, a whole bunch of gods. So Moses comes along and does a, a, uh, a job on their, their faith by making all of their, their gods look stupid by, his, the, uh, by the various uh, miracles that he did. And, of course, Pharaoh had his agents out there until they couldn't, they couldn't copy finally. The, the tough ones that Mo Moses was throwing out there. But it was all against their, their, their worship, their deities. Frogs, flies, you know, Beelzebub, Lord of the Flies. They've, we, we worshiped all that stuff. And Moses made a mockery of it. Well, actually, Yahweh did through Moses. But while in Egypt, Israel did what the Egyptians did. So much so that they forgot Yahweh and had to be reintroduced to, reintroduced to him through Moses. Yahweh began by reaffirming his name, Exodus 3.14. His name is fundamental to who he is, and that's how you get started on the right foot when you understand his name and you call on him by his name, not by a title, not by some abstraction. Abstraction. It's fundamental. His people will know his name, he says. They won't be wishy-washy, sprinkling in replacement titles or debating about what his name actually is. They've settled on it. They understand it. Makes sense. Hebraically, historically, grammatically, it makes sense. So this is what we go with. 
an uncertain, untrained mind is unstable in all its ways, the Bible says. We will not compromise on what we have thoroughly proven is true. We stand strong on it unless we find some amazing truth that shows it's wrong. Then we'll look at it. Take a look at it. We're not locked into everything we believe, but we're locked into those things we have proved. And so that's what we do. And that's what we want to do. Prove all things. Hold fast that which is good. We're not going to compromise on things we've thoroughly proven are wrong and don't square with Scripture. I've heard some say, well, we don't use his name exclusively in our fellowship because we want to be inclusive. Does compromise work when you defy the word? When you show that his name is not that important and any substitute will do? I, I said to this fellow, he, well, we use, we use all sorts of different names for him. So what does that teach the people? Well, we use the name too, but, but then you also use other things, other titles and all these other things. What does that teach the people? Well, the name can't be that important because we can also use these. I said, you stick to the truth and you show them that that's the important name that you need to work with, work with and, and uh, worship. So anyway, I, I wager that 99% of those who preach a name variant don't understand a sentence of Hebrew grammar. And uh, Ryan and Lucas down there, when every morning they get on and have to battle these people that want to come up with their own ideas and you bring in Hebrew grammar, crickets. Don't hear a thing because they don't know Hebrew grammar. We don't, we're no experts either, but we can understand the basics and that's what counts. And why their variant doesn't work in real biblical Hebrew. You get silence in response when you bring that up. But anyway, instead of giving an academic answer based on Hebrew because they don't have one, they deflect to something else, by, like referring you to their guru or attacking you personally. And that's really a, a, a cheap way to, to carry on a, a debate. Anyway, that's what the Pharisees did to Yahshua, didn't they? They attacked him personally. They hated him because they heard that he was going to be a king. And they didn't want anything to do with that. They wanted to be in charge. Now, when it came to leaving Egypt... Israel's freshly mixed dough didn't rise to the occasion, and it sanctified that there was to start a new life from the leavening influence of Egypt. And it meant they were about to embark on a quest for sincerity and truth. Yahweh says you can't keep a feast in Egypt. You can't, you can't pollute your feast by keeping it in Egypt. You've got to get out of there. So that's what they did. We live in a spiritual Egypt. And the world influences us in powerful, insidious ways we don't even realize. We don't even think about it till we find out, really? Is that where that came from? Wow, I didn't realize what I was doing was wrong. We think we have all the corruption removed from our homes, and halfway through the feast, uh-oh, there's a little cracker under the sofa cushion. Now, isn't that telling? Isn't that what it's about? We think we've got our ourselves uh, pretty much in perfection when it comes to our worship, and we find out, uh-oh, we missed something. and uh, Or something we're doing in our life wasn't right. Uh-oh, there's that leavening popping up again. 
don't know if I should tell this one, but uh, we are first keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread. My wife and I were taking a trip. I was living out the West, and uh, we stopped so like midway through the feast. I don't know. We, we left early. I don't know why. Should have stayed. But anyway, uh, we stopped at a hamburger place <laughs> and got halfway through a hamburger, and she says, you realize what we just did? We ate leavening and unleavened bread. And we felt so humiliated and so bad that we kept the, I don't know if Yahweh honored it, but we kept it like three days longer after we got home. But, uh, you know, that happens. It happens because we're not, again, we're, we're living in Egypt. And we don't think these things. We go along with our habitual ways, and uh, it happens. So uh, we said, we're never going to do that again. And so far we haven't, but uh, we live in spiritual Egypt. If there's anything this feast tells us, is this world thoroughly corrupts, can corrupt us. Corruption by osmosis. Just by being in it, we can be dirtied by it. Just by the aura of the, of the spirit of this world. That's what it does to us. Yahweh says to come out of the world and be separate and touch not the unclean thing. Take Lot, for instance, Genesis 19. It amazes me from this perspective that Lot didn't want to go. He didn't want to leave Gomorrah or Sodom. I guess it was Sodom he was in. He had grown accustomed to Sodom. It's leavened environment of sin, even though he didn't necessarily partake in it because we wanted him and called him all of it. But he was leavened by it in certain ways and he was comfortable. This is my home, you know. Gross sin should have grossed him out, but this was Lot's home, so he put up with it until the angel put his hand in Lot's back and said, you're out of here. And gave him some physical persuasion to get out of Dodge. Of course, we know what happened to his wife, who kind of looked back. She was still living by Sodom. Anyway, Yahweh says, come out of the world and keep my feast. And Lot, like we, many of us, uh, don't understand the command really what Yahweh is saying, given the urgency, we still procrastinate. Leviticus 23.1, and on the 50th, 15th day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread unto Yahweh. Seven days you must eat unleavened bread. Every day of the feast we must eat a matzo, uh, unleavened bread. Don't forget that. You know, we go through the line, we kind of overlook the, again, because of, of habit, we forget that the leaven is put there so you grab a piece. Every meal you should have unleavened bread. We're commanded to have it. In the first day you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. And we're commanded to convocate this, this week. And so then it says, but you shall offer an offering made by fire unto Yahweh. Seven days. In the seventh day is in a holy convocation. You shall do no servile work therein. How did Israel offer sacrifices each day if they weren't present? If we understand that leaven symbolizes false doctrine, among other things, then we can see that each spring were to have a doctrinal house cleaning. And we do it at this time to look at our, our beliefs and to study them and, and that sort of thing. Our beliefs and understanding are to have to be brought to the light of the scriptures. Any falsity, discarded. As we feed on the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. As we review our beliefs, we have the chance to assimilate Yahweh's truth into our lives. 
And that's all part of spiritual growth. One day ready to be resurrected by Yahshua when he comes. And that Holy Spirit that's within us will draw us to Yahshua, it says. The Spirit will draw us. And that's why we have the laying on of hands at baptism. So the Spirit can indwell. And as we review our beliefs, we have the chance to assimilate more of Yahweh into them. We feed on the pure bread of life, Yahshua the Messiah. John 6, 48, I am the bread of life. Your fathers did eat manna in the wilderness and are dead. Isn't that something? Bread of life. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If any man eat of this bread, he shall live forever. And the bread that I will give is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Well, we actually symbolically took in his flesh and blood, didn't we? So we wouldn't die. Israel found out if they didn't have their doorposts coated with round with blood, they would have died, or somebody in their house would have died. Can you imagine? All right, you're, you've been living there and with these Egyptians all this time, and all of a sudden, one night, you were told to put blood around your your the frame of your house, top and sides, and then at midnight, an angel comes through. And you hear the screams of the Egyptians all over for miles and miles. These have kind of become your friends. You know, we're, we're, we're friendly with our neighbors, you know. Someday maybe we can witness to them. They're not enemies. Because a lot of them left with Egypt. The, the mixed multitude went with uh, Israel out of Egypt. And uh, so they heard the screams of the death of their firstborn babies and all of that. Uh, it must have been horrible. To have to live through that. Because they were right there in Goshen, which isn't too far from everything else, I guess, in Egypt. And so anyway, this is the bread which comes down from heaven. And by keeping the Feast of Unleavened Bread every year, we are reminded of the power sin has over us. And the corruption that leads to sin has over us. And it's so easy in our world to fall into the habit of breaking Yahweh's law without even thinking about it. Certain things we watch... Uh, certain things we say, just not of Yahweh. We have to repent of that, of course, but Peace of Unleavened Bread gives us the gift of self-examination. For seven days, we're to root out as much air as possible and rely on the power of Yahweh's Spirit. So a child of Yahweh must accept the sacrifice of Yahshua for, for sin, to pay for his sin, Sins that are past, by the way, not sins that are future. And that's one of the reasons we have the next feast coming up. Most churches have a service in which they distribute the emblems of the Savior's shed blood and broken body, known as the communion or the Catholic Mass. And they do this either every Sunday, every month, maybe more often, maybe quarterly or even more. And it's called the Eucharist the L-O-R-D Supper, and they confuse that, and that's why people can get confused about, do we have a supper before Passover? No, it's, that's Passover. It was the supper that Yahshua says, let us keep the feast. You know, Go up into this upper room, get everything ready, we'll have the feast, or the Passover. And uh, that's what they did. They had a meal, they were starting to eat. Yahshua halfway through says, okay, stop. And he gives the memorial. It was all one Passover. You don't have a special meal beforehand. Only later did the Jews uh, 
get their calendar a day later, so they had the Seder, which is basically what the real Passover was, and they have the next day uh, the Passover, and that's why when they came to uh, impale Yahshua, to grab Yahshua, they hadn't kept the Passover yet, and he was done, you know. He was with his disciples. But anyway, uh, we recall the angels passing over. Once we accepted the shed blood of the lamb that removes sin, we do more. We forsake sin and go on to perfection, as we've mentioned. Leaven has so much meaning for us as far as good and bad. And there's good, good leaven, too. There's certain sacrifices that were commanded to be leavened. Uh, Leviticus 23.17, we see that Israel was commanded to bring two wave loaves made with leaven. And that's, of course, at, at uh, Pentecost. And both the wave sheaf and the wave loaves offerings were weighed before Yahweh during the first fruits feast, which is the next one after this one. On the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's uh, the wave sheaf that is offered. And we begin the count from that day after the Sabbath, which would be a Sunday that falls within the feast. That, that also is an area of contention. People say, well, is it the Sabbath that comes in the feast or the Sunday after? The day after do you keep the, uh, the feast and the wave sheaf? Well, it has, the wave sheaf had to be done within the feast not outside the feast. So it's the only Sunday that appears within the feast, and it it's talks about after the Sabbath to establish that it's a Sunday, not a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. It has to have, happen within the feast. So that's where we count from. Then you count the 49 weeks to Pentecost, and then the 50th becomes, uh, becomes the uh, Pentecost day. So back to leavening. Um, it was prohibited in any burnt grain offering and sacrifice to Yahweh. Nothing burned on the altar was to be leavened. This is, is Yahweh-focused now. Also, there was to be no leaven in the trespass offering or the Nazarite offering, number 615. That's a whole other study in itself, but uh, it's, not, it's not poison. <laughs> leaven has a purpose, but not for us in this feast. The two wave loaves at Pentecost were baked with leaven and offered with two lambs. Uh, it's also commanded in part of the peace offering, the, the peace or fellowship offering that the priest consumed in Revelation. I mean, Le- Leviticus seven. So it has various properties, but that's for another study. Being we're told to follow the examples of our Savior, let's turn to Luke two forty one. Try to wrap this up pretty soon here. I got a whole, whole another hour, but we can't, we can't uh, do it now. Anyway, being uh, we were told to follow him, he said now in Luke 22, uh, 41, his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the fe- feast of the Passover, and when he was 12 years old, they went up to Jerusalem after the custom of the feast. Yahshua was later found discussing scripture with the doctors of the law at the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. We are examining our beliefs at this feast, and that's just what Yahshua was doing with the, uh, the uh, Pharisees and the doctors of the law. Here was Yahshua, age 12, where most Jewish boys become bar mitzvah or son of the law, coming with his parents to the Passover. 
They made the command a journey, and they brought him along. They didn't leave him at home. Well, he's only 12 anyway, but uh, verse 43 says, when they had fulfilled the days, clearly being the seven days of unleavened bread. When he reached full maturity now, he was still keeping the days of unleavened bread. Look at Mark 14, 1 to 2. Don't have really time to read it, but uh, Paul addressed the assembly. Um, but let, 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 let's go with this frame of thought right here. Even Yahshua's enemies knew he would be keeping the, the times of the Old Testament and were planning to grab him because of the popularity of Yahshua through the crowds that followed him because of the miracles that he did. They were afraid to take him openly, so they did it sneakily. They did it at night. Our perfect Savior with no sin did not have to partake of the Passover, but he did. Why? So that we would also use, go by his example. That's why he did it. Just like when he said to John, I want you to baptize me. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? You need to baptize me. And he said, no, we're gonna, you're going to baptize me for, to fulfill all righteousness. Same thing with Passover. He didn't have to take it, but he said he was there keeping it with his disciples for an example for us and for anybody else. So don't tell me this is Old Testament um, passe uh, rigmarole. It's not. It is the Passover commanded in the New Testament too. After Yahshua had died and ascended to the heavens, Luke still mentions the days of unleavened bread in Acts 12, 1 to 3. Luke is writing the history of the apostles. Why did he need to insert these were the days of unleavened bread? Why? If they're done away. I mean, he's supposed to have done away with the law when he resurrected. But he didn't. We find his law all throughout the New Testament after his death. If they were abolished, there was no need to refer to them. Obviously, it's to show us that the true assembly was still keeping these days that were ordained forever, forever. There'd be no reason to say these were the days of unleavened bread if that wasn't the case. Paul, of course, was the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was to work with the Jews. Peter actually did a little of both. But anyway, where did Paul spend the days of unleavened bread before going to Troas? We ask. Well, in Acts 20, verse 6, we sailed away from Philippi after the days of unleavened bread. So Paul is keeping them. Why mention that if he wasn't keeping them? It'd be no point. And came unto them to Troas in five days, where we abode seven days. So he spent the days of unleavened bread with the believers at Philippi, and then he moved on. Verse 16, he has to rush to Jerusalem for the Feast of Weeks 50 days later. There again, keeping another one of the seven annual days. Many are told that the Sabbath and feast days ended at the cross. In 1 Corinthians 5, written about the year 59, which is uh, uh, quite a while after Yahshua ascended, Paul addresses the uh, Gentile assembly there at Corinth, and in verse 8 he says, to keep the feast of unleavened bread. The Gentiles who came as well. He likens the sin of fornication to leaven that will soon spread throughout the whole assembly if it's not rooted out. Paul has told us that the history of ancient Israel was for our learning and admonition and that we should not stumble and fall at Yahweh's words, 1 Corinthians 10.6. He warned us to get rid of the old leaven. This is long after Yahshua resurrected, 1 Corinthians 5.6-9. Your glory is not good. 
Know you not that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Purge out therefore the old leaven, that you might be a new lump and so forth. He was, of course, speaking metaphorically, but we understand what he's talking about. We find two words in the Hebrew translated leaven. Seor, meaning leaven, four times, and leaven bread, one time. Actually, it means leaven mass. And we derive our word sour from seor, from the Hebrew word seor. I have a whole book showing the English roots in Hebrew. Or the, put it this way, the Hebrew roots of English. It's amazing how many words connect with Hebrew, come out of Hebrew, first used in Hebrew. Now, there's some, you know, some modifications, but you can still see that there's a connection there. The other word is kametz, strictly meaning leavened bread or bread that has been acted on by seor. And, and Yahweh wanted nothing corrupt in sacrifice consumed by him, which says, Volumes, really, about our worship today. Nothing corrupt. Some say it doesn't matter how we worship Yahweh so long as our hearts are right. But what makes your heart right? What makes your heart right? Your heart is right, made right by the word. Anyway, he specifically commands us to, once a year, to examine ourselves in this way. Unleavened bread or matzah was to be eaten for seven days. No comates was to be found within the borders anywhere on the coast or in the land of Israel. That's why we said dump everything that's leavened in the dumpster by Tuesday night because Wednesday it's going to be out of here. We don't want any leavening on this property. A caller asked whether it was okay to bring leavening that he had removed from the feast, uh, before the feast, back into the house. I guess I covered this before. Exodus 11 says, put away, in Hebrew is a word meaning to cease, exterminate, or destroy. That's what you got to do with it. Get it out of here. And once you put that leaven out, it's not to be brought back in. I can get into the chemical action of leavening, but I think uh, that's for another time too. Maybe sometime at this feast. But uh, there's different things that people think are leavened, like soda pop, not leavened. It's, it's infused with carbon dioxide. Uh, there's other things, too, that, uh, that don't pass for leavening. But we can do that in a study, maybe one of the Bible studies. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 to 8 talks a lot about unleavened. And uh, he says, uh, verse 8, Therefore, let us keep the feast not with the old leaven, neither with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Two levels. Malice and wickedness and unleavened bread of sincerity and truth, all connected with leaven or unleavened. So, what we find about leaven, uh, unleavened bread or unleavened anything that uh, we take during this feast is it's tough, it's hard, and it's unpopular. What about the truth of Yahweh? Isn't it the same thing? It's tough, it's hard, it's unpopular. It's been said the truth of the sacred name is the most difficult of any Bible-based faith. And I think it's probably true. I think it's probably true. As the major face of Christianity and Judaism split and went down their separate roads of compromise, Yahweh's people, on the other hand, took the uh, less road traveled by, went down to continue the way brought on 
by the word and also by Yahshua the Messiah. And as uh, poet Robert Frost said, that's made all the difference. I don't see how anybody can go back once they get to this point in their faith, how they can go backward. Just Unleavened bread is hard. Standing on sound doctrine and sticking with biblical principles is not easy. It's not easy. You're going to face criticism for doing that. But you've got to stick to it. And it's a joy. It's a joy to, to realize that what you're doing is pleasing Yahweh. And I can just hear the angels rejoicing like they do over one sinner who's repented. Rejoicing when they see the word actually being lived in this age, this corrupt age we live in. Sticking with it. So we know that beliefs have consequences. They'll say, well, you're not responsible. Just throw it all on Yahshua. He, he did away with all of that, and he paid the penalty, and, and uh, he, he did away with the law. And, uh, forget the passages telling that we, we judge by what we do in this life, Romans 2, 6, who will render to every man according to his deeds, to them by patient continuance in well-doing, sticking with it, doing what we've known for years to do and stick with it and not deviate, seek for glory and honor, immortality, eternal life. That's our goal. I talked with uh, an elder from, uh, uh, many of you know him, Sammy Graham up in Michigan. He's been with it, oh my goodness, he's in his 80s, I guess. So he's been in the truth something like 60-some years, maybe more. Still at it. And he said, I'm still going and I will go until the day I die. And that's the resolve that we have to have. You look at some of the old patriarchs and how they brought in the truth and then stuck with it and really kind of changed the world because you didn't hear about the name, the sacred name in the 1960s, 1970s. People say, what? What's that? You know, I heard it all the time. But now, you bring Yahweh's name, and yeah, yeah, we know, we know, we know. Uh, Our church uh, knows, the minister knows, uh, he just won't use it. But, well, I think I'll close. It's getting late. Matthew 5, 11, blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad. Brethren, there's a goal out there. There's a blessing coming. If you stay strong, for great is your reward in heaven. For so persecuted they the prophets which were before you. Hebrews 11, look what they had to go through. How does regular worship explain that? They're not facing persecution, at least not yet. But Yahweh set the course. So we can't dabble in the truth. It's one way, all the way. It's all the way or no way. And that's why we take Immersion into Yasha's name so seriously. Yasha said in Luke 9.62, No man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of Elohim. So we're in it for the long haul. We cannot go back. We've got to be strong. The word is crystal clear. We can't put anything before Yahweh. The first commandment says it all. I am about the truth to be here. Those hard choices we made... Because we love Yahweh. Difficult decisions sometimes. You don't stop when you enter the body of Messiah. In fact, you just begin. You just begin. 
Some say, well, I, you know, I've got, I've got it all under my belt. I, uh, what more can you teach me? One guy asked me that. I said, maybe I can't teach you anything. But you know what you do now? You take that word and you teach someone else with it. That's what you do. You don't, you know, you, you don't let your, your, your gifts, your talents go to waste. Now that you've been educated, you go through college, you know, and you, you get a degree. Do you just sit there and do nothing? No, you get a job where you can apply that degree. The same thing here. You apply what you learn to help others. That's what we're here for. Once we know, we help others. And there's nothing in this life more important. Nothing matters more. So may you get all you can from these seven days, brethren. And uh, having done so, go out and teach others in the time that's left. Because uh, you got to be the Bible that many need to read. Yahweh bless you and strengthen you in his word. Hallelujah.